Rebel Force Radio is brought to you in part by Little Debbie Snacks, bakers of all galactic goodness, like mini donuts, star crunch, cosmic cupcakes, cosmic brownies, nutty bars, and much more. Little Debbie, official snack of Rebel Force Radio and fans around the galaxy. From Tops comes the all-new digital card collecting app, Star Wars Card Trader. Collect and trade everything from legendary 1977 Star Wars cards to new cards featuring exclusive content from Star Wars Episode 7: The Force Awakens. All from the comfort of your mobile device. Star Wars Card Trader. These are the cards you're looking for. Rebel Force Radio presents... This is Master Obi-Wan Kenobi. I regret to report that both our Jedi Order and the Republic have fallen. This is Star Wars Rebels Declassified. I like the sound of that. A roundtable discussion about Star Wars Rebels. Pretty gutsy move, kid. I am the Inquisitor. Or Boston. Chopper, get us out of here. Now it's time for Star Wars Rebels Declassified. All right, Star Wars Rebels is back. That means we're back. Here on Rebel Force Radio, Rebels Declassified. Back just in time for the return of the Mandalorians. Or should we call them Imperial Super Commandos? No, that's, that's not a new trooper for Rogue One. No, no. It's here for Star Wars Rebels. And uh, the seventh episode, as we count them, of season three. We're going to break it all down for you. Because there's more than meets the eye here, right? No, that's another show. What was that show? What was that? GoBots? Yeah. More than meets the eye. I had GoBots. (laughs) <laughs> okay, all you rich kids with your Transformers. I stay true to the three and three-quarter scale. All right, let's talk about it. We've got a great show and a great panel uh, as we welcome back uh, Star Wars Rebels after a one-week little break. And uh, we took the opportunity, at least I took a break. I don't know about uh, uh, Jimmy, we'll find out. So let's go around. Usual cast of characters, plus a couple of very special guests. Starting, of course... With the aforementioned, my good friend and yours from Chicago, the uh, home of the World Series champions, the Cubs, <laughs> Jimmy Mac. Hey, Jason. Hey, Star Wars Rebels fans. Yeah, you know, um, GoBots, I don't even know what you're talking about. I, I had Micronauts, okay? Oh. <laughs> Anybody remember Micronauts? You know, you want to talk about rich kids with their Transformers. I had Micronauts. I must have been living on Skid Row. Mm. But, uh, you know, those were the 70s and 80s. And uh, I guess, you know, we all valued uh, whatever we could get our hands on as far as toys go. But uh, Micronauts for me. Well, GoBots were sort of the smaller generic version of the uh, of Transformers. Right. I get it. I yeah, get it. Yeah. Right, to me, Micronauts were smaller uh more generic version of star wars action figures quite wait, are, my, wait a minute, are micronauts what i think that let me let me look at micronauts I micronauts I were uh, oh I my god they, yeah. yeah from no. Mego. i think they were from Mego. yes and they, were, they were and they were based on a japanese toy line that i think even predates star wars so um but i i, I don't know about that well I don't no know. no you're right jim you're right they, any, they, you know, they started pre- in 1976 so right around the same time 
through 1980. Uh, was it a TV show? No, it wasn't. It, it, um, the Micronauts, uh, I, I believe, had a short life as a Marvel comic book title. Uh-huh. But I don't think they ever transitioned over to television or animation or anything like that. Okay. And I'm surprised they haven't brought the Micronauts back. Bring them back from the dead. Shoot, they brought back everything else. Bring back the Micronauts. Bring back the, and, and the GoBots. And well, they do that, then uh, they, they need to bring back Mask as well. I think they have. I think they so, have. I think there is a, uh, a, a re-release of some of the Mask stuff, I think. Or I might be thinking of something else, but... No, Mask yeah. was after my time. Micronauts was before your time. So I can't wait till we get Tyler on to just watch his eyes spin in his head out of confusion. Listening <laughs> to us old timers talk about our, our crusty, dusty old toys. Yeah, but you got to understand. Sorry, I was, like, taking, I was taking a nap. What are yeah, you guys talking about? You know, us talking about our toys when we were kids, that's the equivalent of, of, of you know, hearing when we were kids, hearing about, like, I, I don't know, like wooden cowboy toys and uh you know like the that's you guys not play with wooden cowboy toys am i wrong in this no no oh yeah right (laughs) smarty right (laughs) spoken like a true millennial uh jeez yeah jeez here it is all right let's 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 uh let's lay off a tyler because we actually have a little test for tyler coming up later in the show uh the self-professed Darth Maul expert. We're going to put that knowledge to the test. At least get his theory because we've got a, a question from um, from one of our special guest panelists. So, speaking of which, let's go around and, of course, our um, our third wheel. We lovingly call him that, Spencer Brinkerhoff, the third, the Waffle Man. As I That's found right. out, yes, He's- we love the waffles at our house. Uh, we've got three of them and one in disrepair. When, when you're cooking breakfast for uh, seven kids, it really is helpful to have three waffles out. And, you know, it just helps streamline the whole production. You are the waffle iron chic. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> or chef. I'm the chic chef. Yeah. So you, you're not kidding. You actually do have seven children. I do. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and what's the age range? So my oldest is actually 18 years old. Uh, my wife and I have been married for 20 years now. Uh, we had a kid. We've had a child every two years of our marriage, except for this last one was uh, four years. So oldest is 18, and that's just right down from there. Well, so Spencer, has it been easy for you to share the wars with them? Obviously, oh, you're yeah. passionate about Star Wars. So yeah, so they feed off of that, and they they jump on board with you, right. and something that you guys can bond over. So my mom was a little bit concerned. Um, When our third child was born, uh, she had bought some toys for my oldest son's birthday, and they were the the galactic heroes. Yes. And it was the very first ones that they came out with, and she got the Millennium Falcon set. And she was concerned that she got that for my son, but it wasn't the real Star Wars toys because it wasn't the action figures that I had. Mm, It was a whole different scale. Yeah. And um, I saw those things. I fell in love with them. And I went, I went online the very next day, um, bought all the rest of that sets that they had. And they were actually at the door when we were coming home from the hospital with our third child. I got out of the car to take the toys in the house. And my wife's like, um, <laughs> hey, uh, baby, baby in the house too, maybe. And so, yeah, <laughs> it, Kids have been a wonderful, wonderful excuse for me to uh, share my Star Wars love with them. 
<laughs> or, or say, catch me if you can. So two, exactly. so, so two trains are leaving at the same time. One of your kids is tied to the tracks on oh, one, no. No, and, and, and the micro and the, and the galactic heroes. The other. <laughs> I see how this ends. Uh, no, I'm it, the kids. Save, save yeah. the kids because they can help me grab the toys. Right. Yeah, the original, the original Galactic Heroes, though, in all honesty, what a great collectible they are. Yeah. You can find them on the secondary market super easily. I find them at flea markets and yeah. uh, garage sales. I find them everywhere, and usually they're going for dirt cheap, so it's great to stock up your collection with those if you're into collecting yeah. Galactic Heroes because, number one, uh, they always come totally complete because there's no accessories. And right. number two... Um, uh, usually they're in fantastic shape. They can take a beating. They're they're one of the most durable Star Wars toys out there. And what a great way to introduce little kids to mm-hmm. Star Wars action figures, essentially. Oh, the yeah. Galactic Heroes, especially that original line, which, gosh, I, I, I'm so mad that Hasbro completely abandoned that line. And they brought Galactic Heroes back in a different shape. And it's right. It's it's not as prolific as far as the waves go. You don't have that many characters. It just seems like it's been a forgotten line that they just kind of pumped a little bit of life resuscitation into just to bring it back on a very basic level. But that original line is so collectible and so fun and so good for for little kids as far as introduction in the Star Wars collecting. Well, and and that's the other thing about it is – that original line was not Hasbro. Um, it was Play School. And so the, you had to get, and, and it was really cool. They had a Rancor that had a magnet in the back of it. And um, then, and then uh, Mace Windu had a magnet in his hand that would hold on to the back of the Rancor. Right, right. Oh, no, that was Anakin. I'm sorry. But then Obi-Wan had a magnet in his hand, and there was a battle droid with a reverse magnet. And you'd put the hand right up close to his chest, and he could force push him down. And so, I mean, that was some pretty, pretty cool stuff. It was a good style. It felt like it was uh, some of those vinyl sort of collector styles. So it wasn't super deformed that they had a big head, but they were all had their legs bent and they were in this fighting position. The guns didn't come out of their hands. Nothing, nothing there to lose. I mean, it was it's wonderful. You can have a whole bucket full of these characters, almost like the army men. And then you just set them all up, and they all go back into one box because they're smaller. Yeah, yeah. I, I went crazy. Great stuff. But, you know, Play School is a division of Hasbro. So. Oh, oh, well, yeah. In, in the devotion to accuracy department, Spencer, we're <laughs> <laughs> both right. <laughs> you know? Right. Right, but, the demog- the demographic that they were shooting for, however, you know, the play school was those preschoolers instead of the uh, elementary kids. And it's perfect. Uh, like I said, a, a great um, gateway in the Star Wars collecting. Right. Indeed. All right. So uh, there's that this tangent is, we were talking about. There it is. It just happened. <laughs> Way the nice tangent. and drunk. But uh, so let's go. Let's go. So we have a we did this a couple episodes ago, and it was so much fun. We thought we would do it again, and that was to invite some of our patreon patriots uh our supporters uh for our patreon campaign back to uh join us on the uh on the declassified uh, starting with uh, ej hello ej hey how's it going all right man um are you uh i've had a little hard time hearing you oh um it's actually just e oh just e huh. yeah huh. i think we had that last time that happened last time <clears throat> tyler tyler and that's why he's still an intern. Uh, okay. Okay. Uh, Hold on. 
let me let me de- let me defend myself. You wanted a list of names. Uh-huh. I, I sent you the names. One person has E's name. One person has EJ. They are two separate people. Wait a minute now. Hold on. Check your email. Oh yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. You're right. Well, why now. doesn't EJ ever show up? <laughs> I don't know. Are you listening, EJ? Why don't you ever show up? All right, fine. Well, I just put a big heart by E's name. There you go. I, I only have two kids. I don't even remember their names, so don't take it personally. All right. Thank you, E. Also, uh, Ron. Ron is here. Ron also has a pile or a litter of kids, too. It feels like it. It feels like it at times. But, you know, you guys brought up the story about the Galactic Heroes, and it reminded me. Uh, my oldest son, when he made the connection, he was maybe two or three years old, but he was holding those in his hands, and he, I had A New Hope up on TV. And he had seen it before, um, and he was sitting with me, but he had those in his hands, and I saw him make the connection. Of, oh, my gosh, these toys I have in my hands, they're up on TV. And he mm. just got this big, huge smile on his face. I don't know. It must have been eight or nine years ago. I totally forgot about it until you guys brought it up. So Yeah, that, when, they, when they make that connection, yes. I remember yeah. uh, my daughter, she would do that. Now, it wasn't Star Wars at the time, but she was into, you know, like strawberry shortcake and stuff. And all of a sudden, she realized, and she used to, like, she was, like, two years old and would hold it up to the TV and making well, did, those yeah. connections. Yeah, so I got a new daughter. She's, she's four months old, so that's my first girl, so I'll, I'll get to Oh, you, oh, the strawberry, you could all that stuff. The Disney princesses, and that's fantastic. By the way, Ron, I got to tell you, you got like a little Sam Witwer vibe to your voice. Like there's an intensity. Like every time you start to say something, I think it's going to be really important. I, I wish everybody else thought the same way. Um, <laughs> but it's great to have you back on the show. And uh, of course, Tyler, the intern. Our, we love Tyler. He's more than an intern. I don't know what more, but he's more than an intern. That's what they say. A whole lot more. But but he's <laughs> uh, he's he's the Pied Piper, and he brings uh, brings all these folks in for uh, Rebels Declassified. So anyway, all right. Well, let's get to it. Give you the tale of the tape. As I said, and this is the uh, what's that? Jason, yeah. Uh, ben Ben joined uh, late there. After we had just started the call, we had Ben come in as well. Yeah. Well, Ben's late. So <laughs> Ben doesn't get an intro. No, no, no. Of course, Ben. Ben. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, man. It looks like Ben's mic isn't is working right Ben's now. Ben's mic isn't but working? He's waving. He's waving. Ben muted. Ah, uh-huh. you are. So, Ben, are you just like oh. here as a voyeur? Oh, yeah, he got a thumbs up. Okay, yeah, he is. He is. I'm, I got to say, I'm a little creeped out at this, but that's right. We're glad you're here, Ben. Did I mute you, Ben? No, Ben's muted. Okay. Ben's he just doesn't himself. have a mic. Oh, he doesn't have a mic. Okay. All right. Well, he's here just to uh, just to listen, and and maybe type. Can he type? It's like it's like uh, having Stephen Hawking on the show. Can he? Can he, <laughs> can he, can he <laughs> oh my god! We just need this. We just need the speaking spell. Oh, I'm kidding. Jeez, I'm kidding. Oh, he says. Oh my god! It's 4 a.m. where he is. Ben just typed this. It's for you. Oh, my God. God bless you, Ben. Thanks for getting up. Where, where is here? Oh, that, that's why he's quiet, he said. Oh, UK. Okay. All right. All right. Well, let's, 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 get, let's get back to it. As I said, uh, we're talking Season 3, Episode 7, original air date here for Imperial Super Commandos, November 5th, 2016, directed by Stuart Lee, uh, written by Christopher Yost, and... Um, 
was the uh, follow-up episode to uh, the last battle. That was the last time we were all together. So we're back with the Mandalorians, and this is a thread that, of course, um, well, I mean, obviously it dates back to the original films, but at least in terms of this sort of um, ongoing story of the Mandalorians, it goes back to the, the Clone Wars animated series. And uh, anytime we see Mandos on Rebels, it's an excuse to learn a little bit more about Sabine. Uh, it seems like it's a, a little bit of a drip drip uh, in determining or discovering her her origin. But before we get into all of that, because I, I know Spencer did all kinds of research with this, That's because this good. this story has um, has some. Uh, uh, origins in the uh, Son of Dathomir uh, miniseries, the comic book miniseries, where that's where we were uh, first introduced uh, to uh, what's his name? Not not Fen, Fen Ra- Ra- No, not Fen Rao. No, Saxon. Yeah, Saxon. Saxon. Um. So, but but he was never um, Spencer. If I'm correct, he never actually made an appearance in the in the Clone Wars series. This was these were stories that were. They were working on. They were going to continue the plot line with the uh, where they left the Mandalorian Civil War and after um, Darth Maul. Or, or, or was this actually before Maul had his fall there at the end with uh, with Palpatine? Set this the- was, well, so here's we'll set the stage then. So yeah. um, near the end of uh, Clone Wars season five is when Disney purchased uh, Lucasfilm, and at that time they decided to and the Clone Wars series. Now, because of the way the animation works, they went ahead and they've got stories and arcs that were going far on into the future. We've got the story of all of the kyber crystals that was done in a storyboard version that you know we were able to see online, and those were just in animatics. And then there were some of the stories that were done, and they were just the scripts. From those scripts, we get the Son of Dathmir comic series, and that takes us... And we learn more about uh, Darth Maul and that one in his story. And that's where we get introduced to Saxon. We also get from these stories um, another one about Asajj Ventress, which was created, made into a novel. And then. Uh, right, right. I'm just trying to get a sense of where in the timeline did the oh, right. Daphimir <laughs> take place. Spencer wants to give us this whole breakdown. Sorry, I, was, I, I didn't know where we were what, going. The Clone Wars was canceled? What? Yes, the Clone Wars was canceled. <laughs> I, but they came back on Netflix, and we got another season. You guys remember? Oh, my that? oh it was God. like yesterday. Hold on. Wait, hold on. They're called I'm Jason. I'm looking at some here called Lost Missions. Jason, have you heard of this thing? Uh, Lost yeah. Missions. Yes, of course. Yes. <laughs> of course. No, I was trying to get a sense of the timeline because I didn't right. read this comic book. I know, right. shocker, so, but I don't know what. Where are we at? Okay. Yeah, the timeline. When does the story take place? You know yeah, what? You went off script for yeah, Spencer, yeah. and now he's he's thrown off. So yeah, now I'm thrown off. Now <laughs> we're, I'm we're at, to Spencer. Spencer, go back page, to page four. Page Spencer. four. Right. In, page we're like four. right in the middle. We're like right about two thirds of the way down there on page I'm four. At my notes. There you go. So there you go. Now, Tyler, help me out. Did they start this one with um him with Darth Maul being broken out of Stygian Prime, or was that near the end of this one? Uh, that's how Son of Dathomir begins, I believe, because the entire setup is leading to the okay. final so, fight between Sidious, Mother Tows, and all them. Yeah, so what happens is uh, the Emperor shows up, he kills Darth Maul's brother, um, right. Savage Press, and then um, he takes Maul away, and you don't know what happened to him. 
So then right. the comic book tells you that he was in this prison called Stygian Prime. And we actually saw that prison is where um, Kanan went to try and rescue um, his. Oh, gosh. I was going to say Barris, but it's not Barris. It, it was it was um, uh, Luminara. But yeah, it, Luminara it, it, yeah, not Barris. It turned out to and be a bait and switch body kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. yes. Yes. So then Saxon showed up. He was part of the uh, the force that came into that prison the and, and rescued Maul from the prison so that they could um, try and like – it was all a ploy to get after Mother Talzin. Mm-hmm. So that's okay. where we met Saxon. Um, we yeah. get a little bit further story on Maul and then um, a little bit more on uh, Mother Talzin. Now, Saxon has a, quite an extreme look in the, uh, in the comic book. He's got – these uh, horns on the helmet, which is kind of cool, like the Darth Maul horns. So he yeah. was definitely a, a disciple of of Maul. Yes, right. And and see, when we saw in the Clone Wars, when Maul challenged um, Previsla to take over the rule of Mandalore, he won, and all of those Mandalorians sort of like fell in line and adopted his look. And so when they when they adopted his look, they had the horns, they did the black uh, mask and stuff like that. But I believe that we learned um, a little bit more from uh, Pablo in the uh, Rebels recon that um, Saxon sort of like just faded into the background. You know, he he's sort of like um, he was a little bit of a coward, I guess, and he didn't want to like stay stick around after maul was gone so he just faded back waiting for an opportunity to present itself so that he could um reclaim a little bit more power they all sort of dissolved shortly after maul ended up going to his shadow keep all right so so we have um so the leadership of the mandalorians then is uh there's a void obviously after maul uh has um has his fall and once the uh, once the empire takes over, uh, that's when Saxon comes back and right. uh, ends up running sort of the. Uh, I guess this would be the the official faction uh, mm-hmm. on behalf of the uh, or that that are are uh, obedient to the empire. So they're the empire's uh, pet Mandalorians, basically. Right, and uh, something else I was thinking about that that I, I'm not sure if we've brought this up before, but. Um, Pre Vizsla and the House Vizsla is still a, a very prominent family. I mean, even though Pre Vizsla was not in the leadership of uh, Mandalore for very, very long because of Maul, um, still that that name holds quite a bit of clout. And I was thinking about it, and with that name sort of like recognition, um, we see that Sabine gets called out, you know, and they they remind us that she is of Clan Ren, Clan Ren of House Vizsla. And I thought, well, if Vizsla is sort of like this really royal family, and does that make her a Disney princess? No. Oh. Hmm. I, say, <laughs> I say yes. I say no. Sure. <laughs> I say no way, Jose. Why not? Not at all. Not well, at you all. know, if Leia has not been officially inducted as a Disney princess yet, I think it's a bit of a stretch for for Sabine. Um, so, so meanwhile, so that's what we've got going over there. On the other side, of course, we have uh, Fen Rao, who um, we met in the previous season of uh, of Rebels, as the uh, the Rebels were looking for sort of safe passage um, away from Imperial entanglements, we'll say, and then 
the uh, the base on Concord Dawn. And uh, so all of a sudden now we, we see uh, Jimmy Mack, we see Sabine getting kind of uh, cozy uh, with Fenn. And we see that the, the, their relationship sort of, uh, you know, starts where there's some curiosity. There's there's obviously some sort of obviously there's a connection there. They share a cultural uh, bond as they're um, playing uh, whatever that, that game is. It's like there's like daggers. Or you know what? Like, that that game does daggers. have a name, and it shows up in uh, on StarWars.com. I, I, apparently, it's based on something that used to show up in the old uh, uh, Imperial Commando books. I believe it's called Cubicod. The Cubicod. I think that's it. Yes, the Cubicod, or as uh, the production crew called it, Stabble, instead of Scrabble <laughs> with the knives, Stabble. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Because they're knives, right? So they're playing with these knives. Anyway, so Jimmy Mack, we see this whole relationship kind of um, take uh, several forms from sort of a, a, a curiosity uh, all the way to, I don't know, at the end, I don't know where that was there. Uh, I was getting some vibes, you know, maybe. I know there's there's a little bit of an age difference there, but um, is this to maybe give some uh, competition for Ezra? I would say no. I, I think the only vibes that you may have been feeling from them to from the two of them is just based from the fact that they both share a lot of uh, the the Mandalorian passion. As a matter of fact, at one point, Gar Saxon even referred to um, Sabine as as someone who is a loyalist, someone who is known to be a loyalist. So I I, I think that precedes her. And mm-hmm. I think that's something that he's impressed. You know, he he becomes impressed by her as this story unfolds. Well, now, Jimmy, explain loyalist, though. I mean, uh, what what area of well, this? Yeah, that's right. That's right. What is she? What, what is she loyal to? She's she's certainly not loyal to uh, what Satine represented as far as the new Mandalorians go and that pacifism. She does not represent that at all. So does she represent the, the warrior roots of the, the death watch? You know, is, is that where she's coming from? Step into a slim gym. Yeah, that's a great question. What is she loyal to? There are so many different Mandalorian causes. You know, it was great. I loved it at the very beginning of the episode when Ezra goes, I don't get this whole Mandalorian thing, <laughs> you know. No, I loved it because, <laughs> because I think he was. He was I think he was. He was like I. I felt like he was channeling me at that moment. He might be a voice of fan. I felt in this episode. He, I don't get all this. It's. It, I. I find it so confusing. <laughs> uh, I really do. I, I think that it is. I really. I think it is very confusing. Well, and I mean, I, basically, you know, I feel bad for for you know, the, the longstanding uh, EU readers, because it's a completely different, um, you know, backstory for all of, you know, for, for the, for the Mandalorian. So there's been a lot of interpretations and there, there are factions upon factions. It, it is a very um, complicated and I would say um, sophisticated culture that they've created, you know, Dave Filoni and his crew have created here, but it, it, it does lose me a little bit. All based on the popularity right. of Boba Fett, for no, you know, I mean, back in the old days, before, you, you know, the prequels and all that, before the expansion of Star Wars characters to become this giant sea of variety to choose from, you know, back in the original trilogy, maybe it was more like a, a lake 
of characters. You know, there wasn't that much to choose from. And Boba Fett stood alone and he mm-hmm. stood as unique and he was cool and he was individual and he was mysterious. And it, it just seems like they keep, you know, squeezing that lemon to, and making more and more Mandalorian lemonade because he's so popular. So it's spun off into a whole different thing. However, the fact that there were more like Boba Fett was a notion planted in fandom from the very beginning when Boba Fett was identified as a member of a group of super commandos that were defeated by the Jedi Knights during the time of the Clone Wars. So I always had a struggle with how could the Mandalorians then move beyond the timeline into the era of the Dark Times following the Clone Wars, if they were so soundly defeated by the Jedi during the Clone Wars. And I don't think that mythology has changed. I think they're still working within that framework when it comes to Star Wars storytelling. So it just makes me wonder, why do these Mandalorians get closer and closer to the original trilogy era when we were always led to believe that Boba Fett stood alone as the sole reminder of that era, not necessarily survivor of that area, but reminder of that area era because he still wears the Mandalorian gear. So I think that's, that's, that's the thing I'm always wondering. So now, but with the introduction of the super commandos, the Imperial super commandos specifically, it is kind of bringing a whole different sort of prophecy to light because when you consider the, the conception of Boba Fett, when he was merely coming to life on the concept stage, you know, as a drawing, he was imagined by Joe Johnson to be part of a group of Imperial super commandos. It goes all the way back to that, or they would call them super troopers. I mean, there were so many different ways that it was looked at. But as Empire was being developed... Boba Fett wasn't considered to be an individual. He was considered to be part of a group of Imperials, where it would be another trooper. Like we in Empire, we were, we were introduced to the Adad driver, and we were introduced to the Snow Trooper. Well, it, w- it could have been very likely, if development went along this direction, we would have been introduced to Imperial Super Troopers or Imperial Shock Troopers or Imperial Super Commandos, however you want to define it. That's what that design was originally developed for. So in many ways... Having these super commandos show up in the Rebels era is very much bringing forth not only the mythology that was established in things like the Clone Wars, etc., but it's also bringing forth a, an idea that was planted in the concept stages of Empire Strikes Back and bringing that to life. And how often do we see in Star Wars nowadays where things are ripped directly off of the concept stage or even off of the cutting room floor and brought back to life. Look at all the Macquarie stuff and brought back to life and, and made legitimate star Wars. You know, it's even the things that Lucas threw away are still so legitimately and so authentically star Wars that they earn a new life in star Wars rebels. And the Imperial super commandos is a perfect example of that. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, the, the the stuff that they did away with, the stuff that they didn't use, 
uh, I think is, uh, as you say, is just intrinsically more Star Wars than stuff that you know, you can come up with off the top of your head. That now. the new guys so. come up with. You know, and it's funny. I was talking to Paul Bateman about this, and and he even said, you know, for better or for worse, they're using everything of Ralphie's, and and um, and when Paul says something like that, I mean, he understands the things that he believes that Ralph McQuarrie would consider to be subpar. But Ralph created. He was a creative machine. And Ralph also, I don't think, threw many things away. I think that he would, you know, put he would he would create something and say, mm, that's not too bad. But you know what? I'll throw it in the pile. Maybe George will like it. Or maybe Joe Johnson would like it. Or maybe this is something we can expand upon. But I think even at the end of the day, Ralph realized he was submitting things that weren't necessarily top of the heap. But yet they're being pulled off the scrap heap nowadays and being created into legitimate Star Wars uh, canon, which is kind so, of interesting. Well, it was one of the things that I, that I really, really enjoyed when I saw these super commandos sort of show up on screen. These Mandalorians that had joined the Empire is that it instantaneously reminded me of the Empire Strikes Back sketchbook. Yep. It had a blue cover with like a grid on it that looked like a blueprint. And that's where these Boba Fett sort of super commando designs started from. And those were Joe Johnston's and, and it was wonderful, wonderful stuff. And I believe that, you know, Jimmy, you hit the nail on the head. They started out by having stormtroopers, and then they wanted to have these really elite stormtroopers, and that's what Boba Fett was. And that's why when we look at some of those early sort of like costume fittings, Boba Fett is in white armor because he is a super stormtrooper. So as you're Jimmy, I, I love that you kind of wondered about the Mandalorians and how does Boba Fett sort of like be distinguished as the last sort of standout of this Mandalorian sort of like culture when there's these other Mandalorians who have joined the Empire. Well, I believe that as these other Mandalorians are becoming the super commandos and joining the Empire, they're taking on more and more armor characteristics of the stormtroopers. We see them wearing all white. Um, their belt that belt that they have on is really uniquely designed. It reminds me I, I almost exactly to the, the simplified design uh, that the clone troopers had in the Gendi Tartowski series. And even that sort of the visor that the um, super commandos had that's kind of pointy, it looks somewhere between a snow troopers helmet and, again, some of the um, uh, imperial commandos. There was one episode of the Gendi series where it was all these elite you know, commandos that went in to, to take down this tower. And there was a guy in there that he had a visor just like that. And so I, they're pulling designs from everywhere that they've got them. But the super commandos are, are becoming super stormtroopers. And I think that that's where the line gets blurred and allows Boba Fett to stand out as the last Mandalorian because the other guys have sort of like joined up with the new clan. I'd like to jump in real quick. Um, in canon, Boba Fett is not a Mandalorian, and neither is Jango Fett. They're That's just right. bounty hunters. Jango mm. Fett just stole Mandalorian armor, and they were never intended to be Mandalorians. The Mandalorian culture was, like Jimmy mentioned, written around the fact that people like the look of Boba Fett. So Boba Fett doesn't really do anything to encapsulate well, in fact, the Mandalorian I, I think culture. The, the earliest bio of Boba Fett 
which may have actually been on a Topps trading card, said he wears the armor of a Mandalorian warrior. Right. Or, a, you know, um, in uh, the, the Empire Strikes Back novelization by Donald F. Glute, he said that the uh, armor Boba Fett was wearing was worn by a group of elite shock troopers that were defeated by the Jedi. The word Mandalorian wasn't used. Really? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because remember when Filoni had us research all of this back in uh, around what was it season two of the Clone Wars? Yeah, when I think yeah, that's right. When he and George Lucas were reluctantly bringing back Mandalorians into Star Wars culture at the very first at the at the get go, George had laid down the uh, decree. No Mandalorians to be featured in the Clone Wars. But I think the the guys in the writing room sort of opened up his mind to it. As a matter of fact, you can go back and listen to one of our very first conversations with Dave Filoni. It was right around the time of the debut of the Clone Wars TV series. Dave (coughs) will say, I should pull up that old audio too. Dave does say, eh, you won't see Mandalorians per George in the Clone Wars. And, And I mean, it was like... You know, 14 months later, we're saying to Dave, hey, we're saying Mandalorians in the Clone Wars. So, I mean, they just became undeniable. And it is because of the fact that that uh, that was established as part of the mythology so early on that Mandalorians were players in the Clone Wars era. And so now it's interesting to see that we are dealing with the fallout of that. And we're gradually beginning to know about where all of the pieces sort of fell into place following the Clone Wars, following Darth Maul's exile from Mandalore. Yeah, remember, Darth Maul was uh, firmly in charge there for a while. And uh, in the meantime, we're also learning a little bit about Sabine's background, too, which is interesting. So, um, right. I mean, if, if we can, I, I'd almost like to get into Sabine's background a little bit because there is that moment when Gar Saxon... Uh, he, he's introducing himself to Sabine, essentially, there, and uh, he reveals uh, to her that her her mother, Sabine's mother, stands by his side, by Gar Saxon's side, as a leader, I would assume. I mean, because, of course, Gar is, uh, what is he, Tyler, the Viceroy, or he's something of the, the Concord Dawn. Um, I think he's the just the Viceroy. Imperial, Imperial he's the Imperial Viceroy. So when he says Sabine's mother stands by his side, then she obviously shares a leadership role um, of those Imperial commandos, of those Mandalorian Imperial commandos. He reveals that Sabine's mother is looking for her. So Sabine has been on the run. She's been hiding from her family, and she's been lying to her friends about her family because right away Ezra was like, what? And oh no 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 don't don't listen to him you know she tries to turn it around and make it seem like Gar is lying but it, it, I think we all can agree Gar is telling the truth why would right. he why would he lie about this he he reveals he knows that she left the Imperial Academy and I always had a lot of problems putting this together because I couldn't figure out how was Sabine a Mandalorian warrior and then a member of the Imperial Academy and did all of this in in really you know in her teenage years it seems like her experience would have been brief at best, but yet she appears to be a, an expert uh, uh, explosives uh, with explosives. She uh, appears to be certainly very capable of hand-to-hand combat, martial arts, piloting. She obviously had to develop a lot of experience, so I never understood how she was able to do that, but now this kind of opens my eyes to a few things. She was obviously a member of the Imperial Academy 
on Concord Dawn, specifically creating these Mandalorian super commandos, these Imperial mandos. And uh, so she split from that based on her loyalty. Her, she's a loyalist. Loyal to what? That's a great question you asked earlier, Spencer, and that's something I'm sure we're right. going to dig into a little bit deeper. But um, well, the, the fact of the – And who's her mom? You know, that's another question. Good. Well, here, here's who I'm, I'm going to throw it at you. I, I mean, and, and a lot of people have been speculating online that her mom is Bo-Katan. And, I mean, it's starting to all add up, isn't it? Uh, we've heard rumors that Katie Sackhoff has laid I, down I uh, lines. So. You, oh, you don't think so. Okay, but I mean, you know, I, I would love to see the tie-in. Um, obviously, Bo-Katan, when we left her, was um, very high up the ladder uh, with the, the planet Mandalore and the Death Watch for what was left of it, for that matter, during the Clone Wars. We've heard stories about Ahsoka teaming up with Bo-Katan in untold uh, episodes of the Clone Wars, teaming up with Bo-Katan to solidify her rule or at least to um, to, to turn away whatever uh, oppressive forces were still left there um, via the Death Watch and Darth Maul on Mandalore. So where was, where was Bo-Katan left? And, uh, and, and Tyler, uh, who do you think... Um, uh, Gar Saxon is talking about when he is. Well, I, I don't think it's Bo-Katan at all for a few reasons. I mean, you saw Bo-Katan basically leave the Death Watch after Maul killed Pre Vizsla, and um, Saxon stayed with Maul through. So, uh, so you're referring to, to the comic, like come back together. You're referring, referring to, the, to comic. the comic, okay, which is good. where in Ron, actually, one of our Patreon backers who's on the panel was holding up the comic, Son of Dathomir, and holding up a uh, Rook Cast's picture, a Rook Cost. Okay, hold on, um, hold that up she, again. As I believe is only in the comics, but she was part of Death Watch. Um, she was working with Saxon. Her was she was pulling Maul ship as Mother Towson was being killed by General Grievous. So that would make far more sense because then it would make sense for her to at least be loyal um, and to Saxton. Bo-Katan would have to make a bunch of flips to, to running away after Maul killed Pre Vizsla. And I think Filoni has said before that Bean's mother. Ron's input because Ron, I saw he was shaking the comic. <laughs> All right. Well, hold the comic back up, Ron. I, I want to take a quick look at... Uh who Sabine's mom could potentially be. Now I did. Oh, he's got it on the pad and everything. Oh, there she is. It looks like she's wearing the uh, garb of uh, one of those Imperial Knights that we saw in the uh, Star Wars. Uh, what was that? Remember that one? The, that comic from Dark Horse uh, with the Imperial Knights? Star Wars Legacy. Yes. Um, wow, that's really interesting. So I'm going to ha- obviously have to go back and read Son of Dathomir again. And I've read it twice, but apparently nothing. For the character. I'd like to see Bo-Katan at some point um, probably join the Rebellion, but I think it would be interesting to potentially get the trio of Bo-Katan, Rukkost, and Sabine to have three awesome Mandalorian women capacity or something along those lines. I think something like that would be really cool. And it makes sense since they're already uh, grabbing Saxon from that series as well, so... Yeah, I like that theory. Pulling from the Son of a Dathomir comic. So it would make sense yeah. to pull out another. Like, I think she and Saxon were the only named Mandalorians in that entire comic series. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Well, I'm going to have to go back and dig into that one. So that narrows down the field of, uh, of possibilities as well. Yeah, 
for sure. For sure. Um, now, I, I wish they would just um, stick with animation and, and leave it at that. But, I mean, you know, with Star Wars, we're always looking for connections. You know, who right. is Snoke? Who's Ray's parents? We have to know. We, we need all these connections. And it seems like with me... I would really like some sort of connection to Sabine based on the mythology that was laid out before us. And so I was really chomping on the bit for that um, Bo-Katan tie-in. Because right. for me personally, it would make Sabine a better character because her lineage is familiar to me and her then her loyalty might be even more easier to understand because then there you go Spencer back to that question about who is she loyal to what, what, what does it mean to be a loyalist yeah, yeah loyalist well and and here's here's another sort of like a situation is that you we have a lot of people that say uh I, we love to find connections, but does it really have to all be connected, you know? And then there's other people that say, yes, it has to all be collected. This connected. This is one story, and I want to see him click here and here and here and see that natural flow. And then other people say, let's bring him some new blood. I, I'd rather see somebody that is completely fresh instead of it being just like, oh, of course, it has to be somebody that we've already seen. So I flip flop fresh from a certain point of view. I mean, Saxon was fresh to you guys because you hadn't like seen Saxon before. Except, I mean, right. if you've read Son, Son of Dathomir, you would. Well, you know, I mean, he was the such majority. A, he was, the he majority was, of people had not heard of Saxon, so there, he's uh, a new character to you guys. Rukas, then, right. you didn't even know who it was. So but regardless, she could be in there, and you could think that she's completely new. Regardless, right. Saxon uh, it made no connection to Phantom whatsoever. He's featured in about two or three uh, panels in that comic, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, he really yes. he wasn't really a major player in that. So, I mean, right. he doesn't right. make an impact to anyone, even people who are, like, intimately uh, uh, accustomed and associated with that comic book. I mean, you know. Turned a meaningless character into someone well, super interesting, voiced by Ray <laughs> Stevenson, who's a great actor. Exactly. I think well, you know, hey, you know, it's all about development. The no, there's well, no, there's no problem with that. Meaningless characters in the background is very important. It actually gives them purpose. And it makes all these super nerds like me flip out when we get to say, "Ooh, I read him for literally one panel of a comic book. Right, right. But, I mean, it's inconsequential up until he shows up on Rebels. So, I mean, it, it doesn't even matter. I mean, nobody, no, nobody's saying, oh, of course, Gar Saxon. I mean, this all makes uh, sense I, now. I'm sure some people were out there were very excited. <laughs> if, 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 somebody, if somebody recognized Gar Saxon without being told by StarWars.com where to find him, then I wonder about you're those. You're talking about Tyler. I, I mean, you're talking, you're yes, talking to one right. Now. You're talking I'm, to one yeah. right now. I really wonder. <laughs> recognize me and Spencer. I really wonder. Yeah, I, 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 I saw really him. Wonder. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> back in the dark times, back in the '90s and '90s, when there were no oh. movies, I understand. But nowadays, I mean, come on. Right. But again, I, well, I, I kind of want to talk a little bit about those dark times because uh, another thing that I thought was super fun about this episode and the connections that we're making here is the title. You know, super commandos. Is this not the one of the best throwbacks to the old Saturday morning serial matinees? This is George Lucas's um, whole like inspiration. The the commander Cody and the Sky Marshals of the universe. You know, Jet Jackson and the Flying Commandos. I mean, this whole episode brought that back. That 
George was originally inspired by these Rocket Man movies that you would go on Saturday because we didn't have it. We didn't. Sorry. My dad didn't have a TV in his house kind of a thing. And he would go to the, the movie theater and he would watch this movie for a nickel. And um, the movie would end almost literally with the guys hanging off the side of a cliff. And then you'd have to come back next week. So this idea of Commander Cody and the Cody Sky Marshal that was the Commando Cody. And here we are, the Super Commandos with their flying jetpacks. We are back to square one George Lucas inspiration in Star Wars. And I loved that throwback connection as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. It, definitely a retro feel now that you mention it. Spence, of course, I think of the Rocketeer, you know. And um, oh yeah, and but I get the vibe. I get the vibe. I get what you're talking about. And I really thought it was very compelling that chase sequence uh, right. through the canyons of uh, Concord Dawn felt very Star Warsy well, to me. You know, I'm I mean, uh, filled with absurdity, no question about it. But it just it, it it had the elements that i love about star wars action sequences you know right. you could think of something as big and bold as the pod race sequence from episode 1 or the the speeder chase from episode 2 uh or even racing through the trees of endor in uh, Re- uh return of the jedi but i mean it just even though that, that this might not be as grand and epic as those events on the small screen on an animated version of star Wars. It really, to me hit the spot. It was, it felt like great star Wars action happening in the middle of this episode. Now, one of the things that, and maybe I'll throw this out um, to E if you, if you want to jump in here a little bit, when, when Sabine grabbed that jetpack and she's like, oh, I always wanted one of these. Is that not like the Star Wars collector in all of us? You know, uh, what, what did you think about that scene in particular, E, or the idea of the jetpacks and their usage in this episode? Oh, absolutely. It was great. And I, I hope, um, you know, she fixes it and we get to see more of that jetpack. Yeah. Because it's cool. And, um, and Ron, in that sequence, I had a flashback to Return of the Jedi. So... Ezra jumps on the back of one of those super commandos. He chops his he chops his um his jetpack so that he like can't you know fly as well. And then when he hits that brick, was it just me or did that look exactly like Boba Fett slamming into the wall of the sand barge? Did you get that vibe at all? <laughs> I think you're muted. Hold on, hold on. I, I did. I, I didn't take it off. Uh, <laughs> now that you mention it. Yes, but you know what I thought of when I saw that was actually uh, Biker Scout in on indoor oh, yeah. smacking up against a tree. But I want to go back to, to the jetpack, though. You guys asked earlier what what really sets Boba Fett apart. That, that came up earlier. So I thought I thought this when I watched the episode. What sets him apart is he's the only guy that wears that humongous tank jetpack now. And you look at these things, and they're sleek and they're small. And all his all his does is allow him to hop a little bit. These things go for like forever. That's a good yeah. point you bring up. And I was wondering that myself, you know, growing up playing, uh, growing up, I was already well into my adulthood when I <laughs> started playing shadows of the empire, but I certainly didn't grow up on that game. I grew up on pong, um, but uh, playing shadows of the empire. I always got accustomed to the fact that Boba Fett's backpack would give you a boost and, and blast you over to the next 
uh, plateau or cliff you needed to reach, but then you'd have to let it recharge or whatever. It wasn't there for unlimited flight. And what we see here is unlimited flight. And I, I think it's more or less taking advantage of the medium of animation to do that. And, Thus, it opens up a lot of possibilities as far as action sequences go when you have these guys flying around with unlimited flight. I think it was established back in the Clone Wars during those Mandalorian episodes that these backpacks certainly could take you a much longer distance than what we were accustomed to when we were playing Shadows of the Empire 1996 on the uh, Super Nintendo or Nintendo right. 64 or whatever it was, when uh, the, those backpacks had limited flight. Uh, the, I think it's, it's, it's kind of smart and kind of weird at the same time because I'm with you. I was like, wow, this is really... Uh, quite the chase through the canyons with these backpacks. They don't seem to run out of fuel. They don't need to be recharged. And they certainly offer unlimited maneuverability, <laughs> which is it, right. within atmosphere, which is, which is strange for, you know, um, anything that doesn't have wings. Uh, <laughs> you need wings yeah. to fly within atmosphere. Um, well, it, and something else that I thought that was super awesome about this, and Ron, I'm glad you kind of brought up the backpack in Boba Fett, is that I was over at Target, this episode not sponsored by Target, I was at Target um, and saw some of the new Rogue One toys. And there is a stormtrooper that has a jetpack. Right. And that jetpack seems to be a combination of the Mandalorian pack and Boba Fett's pack. So the little propulsion units that are on the bottom of the jetpack, they're a sphere with a funnel at the bottom of them. And that looks just like Boba Fett, just like Jango Fett had. But then the sort of the sleek design in the middle looks a lot like the Mandalorian one. And and this guy, this toy for Rogue One, you push the button and he actually talks. And one of the things that he says is, head for the canyon. And I'm like, oh, yeah, Rogue Rogue One, head for the canyon. The Mandalorians on Concord Dunn, they're just chasing down our rebels, head for the canyon. And they're flying through. I thought, well, that's just a fun connection. There I am, Jimmy, making those connections again. Well, it's, it's not an unhealthy thing to do. I wonder if we will actually see flying stormtroopers, like they say in this episode. You know, he says, doesn't Ezra say something like flying stormtroopers? He says something like that at the very beginning. Well, but, in canon, there are flying stormtroopers thanks to the Star Wars Battlefront game. And the, the jetpacks that are in the Star Wars Battlefront game are more short burst like Boba Fett's. They're not exactly like uh, Sabine. So maybe the part of the empire have state of the art technology because they have more experience with jetpacks. So they get it over the regular enlisting stormtrooper recruits, but it's not, I wouldn't be surprised if in rogue one, you see everybody flying around with jetpacks. Yeah. That's, jetpacks. That, that, that was the question I was going to ask. Do you guys think we're going to see flying stormtroopers in rogue one? Tyler says, absolutely. yes. Tyler says, absolutely. Did you guys <laughs> mention the, uh, the upside down triangle on the helmet? That's also appears in those Joe Johnston sketches. Oh yeah, yeah. We yeah. we didn't we didn't mention those at all, but that that seems to be a staple. I think that somebody on the Facebook group started to point out the uh, the triangles that show up in multiple um, iterations. So we've got Kanan has a triangle on his shirt. We've got Zeb who's got a triangle on his a sort of like chess piece as well. And I mean, I think it's just a design aesthetic. I don't think that there's really a, a connection there. And it's just another piece that I that I enjoy to see back 
from that um, design. Something yeah, else I wanted it was, to. Uh, it was actually it was actually in the Facebook group. Uh, a guy named Al Lozano wrote it, and he speculated that the triangle might be the Nike swoosh of the Star Wars universe. Nice, so Great he might job, be onto Al. something. <laughs> something else that I really enjoyed about this episode is when Ezra gets cornered. Right, he's captured. Now it looked like he wasn't really trying to shoot at you know those super commandos. He was just kind of like shooting in that way to be a distraction. I, it didn't seem like they coordinated that. He just started doing it, and then our super commandos started firing at him, and they captured him. So a couple of thoughts. Number one, help me out with this. When Ezra was in the Imperial Command uh, Academy and he was firing his blaster bolts in the training room in that pit thing, they were all yellow bolts. And it kind of gave me the impression that those were just sort of like stun or training bolts. Then when the Super Commando started firing, those were also yellow bolts. So were they just firing stunners at them? Or did I see that something else was written that maybe the commandos have a different type of blasters and they shoot yellow bolts? You guys got anything on that one, Tyler? It might be training bolts. I'm not sure. What planet did uh, did Ezra do his Imperial Academy stuff on? It that wasn't was, Concord Dawn, was it? No, it was on Lothal. Okay. Um, then Grint was maybe there. Just, maybe it's just the hardware because it, I think stun is usually blue. Well, yeah, that's the one. Fenrir shot Sabine. That was a blue right. bolt, and that's like a circle that I like grows. Tell the way. You asked the wrong guy. Yeah, <laughs> Ron, what do you think? I didn't. I didn't. That didn't occur to me. Uh, so. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, guys, I, I, was, uh, I was. I actually watched this episode with my kids and uh, my four-year-old. When when Ezra is sitting there and he's surrounded by these uh, by these Mandalore <clears throat> super commandos. Uh, and being interrogated, um, I got my four-year-old saying, use the force, use the force. I have, I have my, my eight-year-old daughter saying, well, he should do the mind trick. He should do the mind trick. Uh, you definitely see a reluctance on Ezra's part to, um, to, to use his abilities. And it's very interesting about how selective you know, the team seems to be. And when... Kanan, or in, in at least in this season, we see a lot more Ezra in action when he uses this. Now, why would he be afraid at this point when he's there with you know alone with just these three guys? To um, you know, we've seen him do some incredible things. Uh, why would he be afraid to uh, to use those powers uh, to to set himself free? Said it was that he just like he Saxon just caught Ezra trying to use the force. It, it was I assume it must have been pretty embarrassing for Ezra, but once he did, Saxon said something along the lines of "You just became a lot more valuable to the Empire." I assume right. now that we're getting closer to everybody in the New Hope, they're very wary to use the force just every five seconds. I assume Ezra doesn't want to be flipping around doing force pushes or mind tricks to people. And maybe it has to do with the Mandalorians being smarter than the average human. Maybe they are able to, they have these secret power like Watto to tricks. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I'm just speculating. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it's um, again, I mean, I think he could between him and chopper. I, I was thinking that he could easily take these three guys. Yeah. 
Well, and Jason, Jason has brought up a really good point and something that I hadn't really thought about is that it seems like um, maybe Jason is hinting at the possibility that Ezra is a little bit wary of the dark side. And he's because of that, he's maybe not wanting to use the force as much. And maybe maybe that's what's going on. But I tell you what, E. I totally loved it in this scene that Ezra started went down going down his list of um, his aliases. He said first that you know he was uh, did he say he was part of Hondo's crew first? Yeah, I think he was an associate, or I think he worked for Hondo. I don't remember exactly, but it was along that lines. Right, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I, I'm I'm looking for treasure here," and then um, and then he says, "Oh, I, I'm actually I'm I'm Lando Calrissian." <laughs> ben. Uh... Ben, our silent watcher, also just made a good point in our chat. He said, uh, remember that Kanan said he needed to learn to deal with situations without using the Force. Maybe that could be a similar conversation about the Force and the dark side. So it might just be like Ben suggested, Ezra is trying to learn to stop using the Force as a crutch and sort of rely on his own natural intuition and skills as opposed to just, I'm in a bind. Let's just use the Force to get out of this. Uh, Ron, what do you think? Uh, yeah, you know, that, I, that was a good point he brought up, and it, and it got me thinking about that too. Because uh, I think it was when Ezra went into the cave to retrieve the uh, Sith holocron, right? Um, he said, "You know, Ezra's going to have to learn how to how to solve problems without a weapon." It, maybe right. he said the Force, but I, I for, I'm replaying it in my head as he he said weapon. <laughs> well, and I'm sure that we all kind of like we get a little bit jumbled. And and Yoda said, you know, you know, you don't need your weapon. He says, well, what's in there? Only what you take with you. And so it, it, it's that same sort of a vibe to it there as well. Let's see. I um I really really enjoyed that scene. I enjoyed that they had to, they went back and forth. I love learning more about Sabine and wondering who her mom might be. Do you think there's a, a parallel going on right now between the relationship between Darth Maul and um, Ezra and uh, Finn Rao and Sabine? Kind of like a um, I, th- I think that's a fair assumption to make because Finn Rao and Maul were allies, and Sabine and Ezra are allies, and they're both young impressionable who are who they have two influences in their life that are trying to pull at them negatively fair assumption to make right and i think that maybe the difference between the two is that i get the impression that fen rao is um sincerely hurt by the loss of his clan and the loss of his power and his brethren and so maul there's really something suspicious going on there he's got ulterior motives i think that fen rao is sincere about his joining up with the rebellion and finding that honor in sabine and that was a really important thing that he said at the very end he realized that sabine is willing to die for her people her new people her rebel family and even though they're not mandalorians they're part of her new families and that's the proof that she hadn't completely forgotten these mandalorian ways that he held so true and that had earned his respect and then she said welcome to the new family and so yeah i think that there are some parallels about a mentorship there but at the same time i don't think that he is as suspicious as maul is we're talking about maul as i recall uh, i believe it was ron Yeah, you have a trivia question for me. What's well, going on? It's no, it's not trivia because I don't have the answer. Um, <laughs> okay, <laughs> but the last time we were on here, we, it was a holocron of fate, and um, during that episode, somewhere towards the beginning, uh, Maul was on the ghost, 
looking for the Jedi holocron in Kanan's quarters. And he mentioned to Hera, you want to know Kanan's real name? It's Caleb Doom. So my question is, how does Maul know that? I, I know it from the comic book Kanan, right? That's oh. where I first heard it. How does Maul know his name? I think I exactly know that answer. Um, well, Hera, Kanan's real name from the, I believe it was A New Dawn. That was the book. And Maul was doing the Kylo Ren peering into Hera's mind, I, I believe, or last season. At some point, Maul has used the dark side to peer into Hera's mind. I assume that's how he figured out, sort of use that to can get any information I want from you. I know your uh, name. It's Caleb Dune. So I imagine he just pulled it from Hera's mind. I don't think he has a Jedi Padawans and he cross reference it with Kanan. By the way, he stated it. I guess it didn't. That's not how it landed on me. It landed on me a little bit yeah. different. I think just by the way he phrased it. And I and I wonder just with the, with the fall with the fall of the Jedi Temple, what sort of like access and resources were available to them? You know, did he get onto WikiLeaks and check out you know the the archives, etc.? You know, I think Ooh. that there probably was a record <laughs> that he was able to read, and not necessarily just the mind trick. But I think that that's because it hasn't been clearly stated that that's a possibility that he was using the Force to pull it out. But I, I think it was probably just. He he had his he had his his spies. All right, this is gonna wrap things up for this look at Star Wars Rebels. Grateful for the panel. Spencer, Tyler, E, Ron, thank you guys. Ben. Ben. Ben the mute. <laughs> ben did bring up a lot of moot points today. I'll tell you that. <laughs> and of course, Jimmy Mac. Jimmy Mac, final thoughts. All right, Jason, final thoughts on Imperial Commandos. I was really skeptical skeptical about where they were going to be taking the Mandalorian story. How can they stretch it any further? I brought this up on uh, uh, the classified uh, a few times uh, prior, but uh, I think with the twist of making these Mandalorians imperial and loyal to the Empire, I think that's a whole different twist, and I'm kind of interested to see where that goes. Of course, uh, we can't have an episode about Sabine completely free without me criticizing the character in some way, shape, or form, like everyone's expecting me to do, and I I do have one. Uh, The fact that, again, I've said it many, many times, things come so easily to this character, it almost seems like the producers of the show want to make sure that she gets away with everything in the easiest way possible. Here she is fighting Gar Saxon, a a very uh, esteemed, a very uh, experienced and, and, and strong warrior, and he takes her down from behind, tackles her, and through. if you watch very closely, I, I, I don't have a problem with her beating him in the fight. I'm happy she beat him in the fight. Gar Saxon is a scumbag. But, but the fact that Gar Saxon could not lay a single punch, he could not connect even once while she is kicking his ass, uh, again, it makes me wonder about the superhuman abilities of this character and why they get applied to her. Why are they applied to Sabine? I, I don't know. Now, on the other side of the coin, very excited to learn more about her background, 
And just the fact that her mother stands there with the Empire makes the eventual showdown between mother and daughter something to really look forward to. Sabine is is very snarky. She's uh, very quick to judge. And she also is very rash. And so I think a showdown with her mother could turn into something that would be a, a, a conflict we'll never forget. So I hope they don't downplay that. And I hope that the appropriate amount of drama is added to that eventual reunion. Puff and Pig, not in this episode. All right, that's it. We're out of here. We'll see you next week. Remember, the force will be with you always. Always.